You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi guys, I'm John Boyega and you're now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Enjoy. Black Girls Rock. This is Bill Zook and you're listening to the Black Girls Nerd Podcast. Hey, it's Sanaa Lathan and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, it's Debbie Clown Bell, host of the CNN show United Shades of America, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Favorites, this is Lisa Simpson, and you are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Pay attention. tuning in to episode 152 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is called Homecoming and Lisa Simpson. Three fantastic guests, two wonderful segments. In our very first segment, we feature the new series from Amazon Prime called Homecoming. It's a mind-bending psychological thriller starring Julia Roberts, and it's directed by Sam Esmail and starring actor Stefan James, who plays Walter Cruz. In this episode, we have interviewed both the director and star of Homecoming, actor Stefan James, and filmmaker, also the TV showrunner for Mr. Robot, Sam Esmail. In our second segment, we invite Lisa Simpson to the show. Well, not exactly. Yardley Smith joins us to talk about one of the most iconic animated characters in TV history, Lisa Simpson, who she's played for 30 seasons now. The show just celebrated their 30th season, that is The Simpsons, this past September. But Yardley Smith also joins us to talk about her other projects. She's got a true crime podcast called Small Town Dicks, and she's the co-founder of Paperclip Limited Productions, which makes films. So we're going to talk a little bit about that with Yardley and more. So stay tuned to this fun-filled episode featuring the cast and crew of the new Amazon series Homecoming and actress Yardley Smith. Enjoy. Based on the podcast of the same name, Homecoming is about the character of Heidi Bergman, played by Julia Roberts, who's a caseworker at the Homecoming Transitional Support Center, a Geist group facility that's helping soldiers transition back to civilian life. Walter Cruz, played by Stefan James, is one of those soldiers who's eager to begin the next phase of his life. Sam Esmail is a writer, director, executive producer, and the TV showrunner of the hit series Mr. Robot which premiered on USA back in June of 2015. The show is wrapping up its final season, but that's not stopping Sam. 
You can currently find his work on the new Amazon series, Homecoming. He directed every single episode and serves as executive producer. Nice to meet you. <laughs> and um, I, I have to say, I saw Homecoming, or heard Homecoming, rather, uh, via the podcast right. before the, the series. So talk to us a little bit about this, because I understand that you were also a fan of the podcast before you were attached oh, to this project. huge fan. Um, I, I When I first got the episodes, and I think I'd gotten, I think three had... Uh, been released online and then I got my agents to get me the other three because I couldn't wait and I binged all six episodes and then I sort of re-binged them all with my wife um, and then it was around that second binge I think I did another binge where I started to realize uh, there's something interesting here that could be translated to the screen and that could be expanded upon on the screen um, and so that's sort of when the talks happened about adapting this to a television show what was it about the podcast series that really struck you? I just, to me, I'm such a fan of these sort of old school thrillers that are um, really steeped in character and less, less, more, less about action set pieces, which I think is more common nowadays, especially in the thriller genre um, uh, and in movies. Um, they tend to be basically uh, action films with sort of twists and turns. Um, Whereas in you know back in the day with the Palma and Hitchcock and uh, Pakula and Kubrick, I mean Kubrick, his last film Eyes Wide Shut is like one of my favorite films. Mm. That was a thriller that's really about characters and their interactions and their sort of these intimate scenes um, and these weird sort of reveals that happen because of that, um, and not really about these big set pieces. And so that was something that really resonated with me when I listened to the podcast and really excited me about. Tr- uh, putting that into a TV show. You mentioned Eyes Wide Shut. Were there any other particular films that inspired you? Or oh, I mean, I could rattle off every De Palma <laughs> film if you wanted me to, or or a Hitchcock film. I mean, I mean, look at Psycho. Psycho to me. There's a scene when um, when Janet Leigh's character uh, meets Norman Bates, and there's this I don't know ten minute scene between the two of them just sitting in a room um, uh, in his in his weird little office with the taxidermy and um, and it's a 10 minute scene between two characters and it's just dialogue and but you are so intrigued and you're so invested and um, and he keeps you on you know in, in this really uh, 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 suspended animation on what's going to happen and that to me is what the power of what I think Eli and Micah did so well with the podcast yeah. is that it's just two people talking, but yet, ex- like like a set piece, explosions are happening. Well, we see that a lot in Homecoming between Heidi Bergman's character and Walter Cruz. So right. What was it like directing those scenes? Well, honestly, that was the most intimidating thing as a director because you kind of, and especially for me who I love to figure out a way to make the camera uh, add this sort of d- dimension but those scenes you you really have to let the char- you really have to let the actors perform the, pr- the production value are, are their faces are their mannerisms how they're going to deliver the dialogue and because I had the brilliant Julia Roberts and because I had an, a very brilliant talented young actor in Steph Allen James those scenes were pretty much me watching the, the monitor like I was a fan Right, right. That's amazing. Um, and one of the things I noticed as a huge fan of Mr. Robot is the opening credits kind of 
Have some parallels. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, are there any other parts of Homecoming that kind of pays homage to, to Mr. Rogers? Well, I, you know, um, pays homage, I don't know. I mean, it's definitely, there's always that style and my philosophy in terms of um, opening an episode and setting the tone is really critical. And that's why I'm kind of personally against doing a title sequence or anything like that um, where it's the same despite what the ep- that episode might be right. so um, so that's kind that's of the thank you um, but um, you know um, in terms of our style look I mean the whole creative team for Mr. Robot is is back here you know Stasha my production designer Todd my DP Kat my costume designer um, and we were just always in sync so obviously that there's going to be some bleed over between uh, uh, this and Mr. Robot but also you know we, we know that this is a different story it's a different tone and I think it's got a, its own distinctive kind of flavor from Mr. Robot so well, how important is music in, in a show? Huge. Yeah. Well, to me, music is the soul, right? Yeah. You know, tone is probably the most trickiest. It's the trickiest thing to figure out whenever you're doing a television show or film. A lot of people, what they do is they sort of abandon the tone. They're always about, let's just tell a good story and right. forget everything else. Right. To me, that's that's just really missing the point. It's not... What the, it's not just the story, it's how you tell the story. And that comes with tone. And for me, the really nailing that, the heartbeat of that is music. Yeah. The heartbeat and soul of that is music. It is like an adrenaline shot to the heart when the perfect song or the perfect piece of score rhymes with the visuals and the scene and the performance and, you know, and the production design. And all of that comes together. Music is what really becomes the heartbeat of that. Um, and so for this, because... Because Homecoming was such a, uh, to me, like the way I felt it, the, the way I felt it when I first listened to it, because the story was such a throwback to those old school thrillers, I knew with music that I really wanted to just, instead of trying and ape those old scores, that I really just wanted to use those old scores and not hire a composer and just really kind of lean on all the great classics and bring that score to the, to the show. Right. There's a scene in episode four where uh, Colin is being interrogated, and um, there, the, I forget the character's name. Carrasco. Carrasco. Yeah. yeah. He walks into the office, and we hear the theme music to Carrie. Right. Which is ironic. Yeah, yeah, because this is basic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what led you to choose that selection? I mean, again, De Palma is probably one of the biggest influences uh, on the on the series. So. All his movies, and Pino Donaggio, the composer of, um, I think, most of his films, um, is just somebody I grew up listening to um, because the music is so melodramatic, but done on such an executed on such a high level that it completely works and adds this weirdness and and mystery and suspense. It just has this nice blend and. For that moment, especially, and I knew we were—I I knew from the get-go we had to use that particular score, which was from the scene in *Carrie*, the, the basically the the climax of that film, the prom scene. Yeah, the prom scene. Uh, yeah. And um, I was like, "This sounds familiar." Yeah, and uh, yeah, and so I knew we had to. We had to use it um, at some point in the series. I kind of told all the editors, you know, this cue is a, is a must-have. And Rosie is a brilliant editor. I, I didn't actually pick it for that scene. She she was cutting the episode, and she thought she tried it out, and she thought it worked well. So she took a swing, and I listened to it, and I was blown away. Yeah, yeah it's perfect. Yeah, it definitely heightens the climax of that. For sure, yeah. Yeah. And then, like, we were t- I was talking about Colin earlier. 
Um, Colin is actually my favorite character, <laughs> even when I listen to the podcast. <laughs> and having Bobby Cannavale like in cast was just like perfect. Yeah. Did you handle that at all? Or? Oh yeah. I mean, it, weirdly, we were. So when all of this was going on, I was shooting this, the third season of Mr. Robot, and Bobby was in that. Played, yeah. He did a great great job playing Irving, uh, one of my favorite characters from oh Mr. Gosh, Robot. And I, I believe we were shooting um, the scene at, at his, uh, at, at his uh, used car lot. Um, and we were just sort of sitting in the garage waiting for the next setup, and um, Bobby leans over to me and he's like, hey, have you heard this podcast, Homecoming? It's so good. And at that point, he had no idea that I was involved, that we were, that Julia was, atta- like, you know, it was so far uh, ahead. And I, I was like, Bobby, I'm making the, the show, the TV show. And he's like, what? And he just sort of shared the enthusiasm that I shared when, we, when I first listened to the podcast. And then we just started talking and he sort of, you know, told me he was, a, he was interested in playing the... Um, the uh, con part and oh, okay. I mean it kind of immediately clicked in my head oh th- that would be perfect wow. and I lo- we, you know, I think we just loved working with each other for Mr. Robot that was kind of an easy conversation yeah that's fascinating yeah he was telling you about it yeah I, yeah that's yeah amazing. Um, so is there a scene in uh, Homecoming that resonates with you the most um, I can just tell you that um, Emmy and I just recently I just finished the rough cut of the last episode and um, and just I, I usually do not cry and it's weird to even say this because it's like a narcissist narci- I feel like it's narcissistic or something because it's something that I directed but um, it really had nothing to do with me this is Julia's performance and Stefan's performance in the last scene of the show just breaks your heart and I mean I just was like weeping I mean and again it had nothing to do with me it's just their performances are on such a high level and they're so human and emotional um, that it'll, I, it just stayed with me yeah now you directed each of the episodes of this series right. and then I'm Mr. Robot you're a TV showrunner so do you have a preference over executive producing over directing or? well I direct every episode of Mr. Robot too oh, oh okay. yeah 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 <laughs> Um, what's great about Homecoming is they're half-hour episodes, so you're kind of uh, you become a little less insane by the end of it. Um, but um, but it's you know to me it's it's a tricky thing. I and mean, when Julia and I first talked about doing Homecoming, it was really important to her that I was the director of all the episodes because she, coming from the feature world, her you know she didn't really get the whole you know a new director comes every seven days and does it tackles an, another episode um she wanted she had that mindset which is very similar to mine which is why in mr robot i chose to direct all the episodes because mm-hmm. i i kind of had that mindset of uh, that similar mindset of there should be one sort of cohesive vision um there you should you know you should have all the scripts done so that the actors can kind of understand their arc for the entire season um that and then you can also shoot in a more uh, productive way because you can block shoot all the episodes and not have to jump back and forth in locations so just just everything from top to bottom um felt like it made more sense for my mindset and obviously for julia's and like speaking of Julia, like this is her first time in a you know right. a TV. small screen role. Yeah. So what led to that? Uh, you know, that she was marriage? a yeah. She was a fan of the podcast, and um, and when I found that out, I jumped jumped on that real quick and told my agents. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Julia's, and told my agents, let's 
I'd love to talk to her about it. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I went into the into the uh, the FaceTime meeting really kind of intimidated because again, I was I grew up a big fan of hers, and um, she's you know this sort of big movie star. And um, but she disarmed me really quickly within the first few seconds. We were talking like we were old friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think and then we started talking about the project and. You know, I told her about the tone that I was going for, and she was complete. She's a huge fan of all those movies, and she had worked with Pakula actually on the Pelican Brief, a movie I really loved. Yes. And um, and so we just kind of clicked and hit it off, and we, we knew we wanted to do, we wanted to turn this into the same thing. Right. Well, I have to say, right now I'm in mourning because of the announcement of Mr. Robot and right. the final season. So what what led to that decision? Well, it's. You know, it was a difficult decision, but what happened was I, you know, knowing where the ending was, knowing from the beginning how I wanted to wrap up the series. After this, after we finished season three, we went into the writers' room. The number one thing I wanted to find out was, well, how much, how much more story do we actually have to tell to get to that ending? And so we kind of sat down, we broke out the number of episodes, and I took that to USA and uh, and UCP, and they both. Uh, really discouraged me from ending it in one in one more season. I um, I uh, I told them that I just was not interested in um, you know in treading water. I was not interested in dragging things out. Um, I don't think the fans deserve that. I think the fans deserve a complete story where we're never uh, trying to extend things um, for the sake of extending things. So um, they were obviously on board with that, respectful of that. And um, and so even though it saddened all of us, we knew it was the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. It's such an amazing show. So well, thank you so much. But you shouldn't be too sad because it will, it will end in the right way. You know? Okay. Right. So there will be some closure for us. There, there will be, yes, for sure. Well, I really want to see Bill Street because of Stefan. I'm a huge, and I'm a huge Barry Jenkins fan. Um, um, and obviously, I'm a huge Stefan fan. But the trailer is probably one of my favorite trailers that I've seen this year. And I couldn't be more excited to see it. Excellent. Thank you for talking to Thank you. Sarah. This was awesome. I'm so glad to finally meet you. Yeah. <laughs> Can I get a picture? For sure. For sure. to say that was my most nerve-wracking interview I ever done. I think I composed myself pretty well overall, but trust me, I was so nervous talking to Sam and he was so pleasant and so accommodating. So I'm glad I was able to hold myself together on that. Before we get to our next segment, I want to talk to you a little bit about Scentbird. So fragrance brands like Gucci, Prada, Dolce & Gabbana, they sound really super expensive and it's probably kind of rare or on special occasions that you decide to get some of those brands. Well, with Scentbird, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You can actually get all of these brands and more for a super low and expensive price. Think of Scentbird like Netflix for fragrances and high-end perfumes. Choose a perfume and they'll send you a 30-day supply and you have a selection of over a hundred different fragrances, so you're always going to smell amazing. And guess what? The shipping is absolutely free. Skip the department store, skip the people spraying in your face trying to get you to get those high-end fragrances. You make the selection, you pick it. So one of my favorite scents is Philosophy. I love the Philosophy brand, and Amazing Grace is one that I wear on a daily. 
And then if I'm going out on special occasions and things like that, then I'll take out some of my other scents. Another favorite of mine is Prada's Candy Floral. What's great about Scentbird.com is they're offering an exclusive offer for all of our listeners. You'll get 50% off of your first month today. That's right, only $7.50 for your first perfume. So for 50% off your first month, what you'll do is text 246810 with the code NERDS. Text NERDS to 246810 to get 50% off of your first month using Scentbird. 246810, text the code NERDS and you are going to smell wonderful. Keep in mind that message and data rates may apply. That's 246810, text that code NERDS and smell amazing. Stefan James is a Canadian actor who's best known for his role in the 2016 film Race, where he played the role of track and field sprinter Jesse Owens. Stefan can be found in two big projects this year, Amazon Prime's Homecoming, where he's the lead star playing the role of Walter Cruz. You can also find Stefan in the Newberry Jenkins film, If Beale Street Could Talk, which will be in theaters later this fall. You know, it'd be cool. It'd be cool if I got time to see Widows. Um, yeah, you know, Steve much. McQueen is one of my favorite filmmakers. That'd be that'd be really cool if I got to see that. Um, Hate You Give, um, A Star Is Born. There's 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 a few titles I would love to see if I if I get the time. But uh, <laughs> I think that's pretty <laughs> ambitious thinking right now. Absolutely. Well, for a lot of us podcast listeners of Homecoming, I actually happen to be a really big fan of the podcast. Oh, cool. Um, you're playing the role of Walter Cruz, and you've got some pretty big shoes to fill. Oscar Isaac had done the voice on that. So um, did you listen to the podcast at all? Yeah, I did. I did. I mean, the podcast was the first iteration of this story that I really heard. Yeah. And um and really it was the first podcast I'd ever heard. <laughs> I hadn't wow. listened to yeah, I hadn't listened to podcasts beforehand. So um, you know, when I finally got it, it, it I never really knew how it would go or how you really even go about listening to it, but it was something I just sort of fit into my daily life, you know, when I was in the car I'd listen to it, when I'm in the gym I'd listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um and it was just a fantastic story and then the script was even better. So for me it was just like a no brainer to be a part of the project. That's amazing. Have you listened to any other podcasts after experiencing Homecoming? No, that was my first, but it probably won't be my last. I'll probably give a few other, uh, you know, maybe you'll make me some suggestions. Black some cool. Podcast. Okay, well, hey, we'll shout out Black Girl Nerds one time. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll have to start listening to that. Yeah, you could start there. Yeah. 
Did you get any tips from Oscar Isaac at all? Who played no, character? no. Oscar and I never, never spoke, but he was great. I mean, that whole podcast was great. Really, they could have kept the whole cast of that thing, but um, no, it was, you know, it was really cool just to hear, you know, their, their take on it. Yeah, absolutely. Nearly all of your scenes are with Heidi Bergman, played yeah. by Julia Roberts. What was it like working with such a legendary actress? Uh, it was incredible. I mean, you know, it's still one of those pinch me moments. You know, she's probably one of the most um, prolific actresses of our time, you know, of this generation. And, and to be able to share so many moments with her, so many scenes with her, um, you know, she's my scene partner throughout this, um, throughout this series. And, um, you know, what can I say? I, you know, I just took the opportunity to learn and to grow. And, um, you know, luckily enough, she was, she is just an incredible person and, and, uh, obviously an incredible actress so you know it made my job easy if my job can't be easy at all (laughs) (laughs) well you guys had a lot of chemistry and it was palpable did you guys work together a lot off screen um did you guys get to know each other as friends before building um i mean we didn't have a whole lot of you know time to hang out or anything like that you know i had met julia a few months before um in la very briefly and you know, after that, it was sort of just like diving into the into the fire. But you know, luckily enough, she's such a great performer. Um, you know that it was easy for us to sort of just get you know get into it. Um, but I wouldn't say that we had a whole bunch of time to to prep or you know build a chemistry. That's maybe something that formed o- over time. Right. Uh, aside from listening to the podcast, was there any additional research that you put into preparing for this role? The podcast was mostly it was mostly it. You know. Uh, we were telling a very specific story uh, as it pertains to the podcast, and so the podcast is probably my biggest, um, my biggest tool. Right. And I know you're hosting an event here at TIFF, yeah. your annual Black Ball. Yeah. So for our listeners that aren't familiar, can you kind of share with us what that's all about? Of course. Um, so I have the incredible opportunity of being the founder um, of, alongside with my brother Shamir Anderson, of an initiative called... Um, called the black ball and it's something we started three years ago um and black is an acronym for building a legacy in acting cinema and knowledge and um and literally it's just celebrating a legacy in black film and and, and cinema black filmmakers and um you know highlighting not only uh, you know the generation in which we've been inspired by but the new generation that's inspiring the next generation and um it's just a really cool celebration that we have every year during tiff we're going into our third year and this year tiff uh is our official partner so it's an official tip party and it's it's an incredibly exciting that's amazing all the best to you on that event yeah thank you so much and I have not yet had the pleasure of seeing uh, Beale Street, uh, but I do want to see that film when it premieres, and I'll be attending the premiere. What What was the easiest and what was the most challenging part about working on that film? Um, the easiest part would probably just be just the cast and crew. They were just so phenomenal. You know, um, Kiki Lane, phenomenal in, in the film. You know, she I think it was her first film, and, and she really just... I mean, she really kills it, um, you know, for somebody who's never done a, a major film like that before. She really just, uh, I mean, she nailed it. And uh, and so it made my my job super easy. You know, a lot of my stuff was with her. And then, of course, working with Barry Jenkins, you know, um, so brilliant, um, so kind and, and easy to work with. You know, a guy like that, you know, he could 
act however he wanted to act because of how brilliant he is. But it's special that, you know, he carries himself in the way that he does and, and makes himself so accessible. And he's really just, um, you know, he's a very actor-friendly director. Um, you know, he makes the space very comfortable for you to be able to play and to explore and to improvise. And um, so when you have partners like that in which you're crafting a, a film with a project with, that's probably the easy the easiest part. But um, just being hard... I would say just, you know, trying to be truthful to the language of Baldwin, you know, the great James Baldwin. Did you read the book at all? Definitely read the book. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a special book, you know, and James Baldwin is such an iconic storyteller uh, figure in general. Um, so for us, it was just, you know, that, that pressure of just wanting to make sure you, you were doing it right. And, and you know, so we, we just hope we make James Baldwin and his, his family proud. people that have listened to the podcast and then we'll see the series do you think that uh that there are similarities there think yeah there are a lot of similarities but i mean you know like anything once you bring it to 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 screen uh, there's going to be so many different colors and aspects and layers to these characters that you can now form and build and um you know things that people will see that doesn't even have to be said that add you know so much to to the uh, to the pr project so uh, you know for me there will be a lot of similarities in story um, but you know these characters are, are, are more whole now you get to see them as, as being more whole right right last question um, here Black Girl Nerds we talk about nerdy and geeky things okay what is something that's nerdy about you that not a lot of people know about something that's nerdy about me that not a lot of people know hmm let me see uh, I don't know if this would be considered nerdy, but, like, I love, like, like forensic files. Oh, nice. Do you I, watch, like, the CSI? Oh, I, I love that stuff so much. Like, it's really incredible. It's like, a, I'm like, every time I'm, <laughs> I'm at home and I got some free time, I, like, binge watch forensic files or CSI. I actually originally got into school for forensic psychology so that's always been an interest to in me you know despite what I'm doing in the acting world yeah. um, that's always something that I'm always uh, always interested in to, to, to learn about Maybe your next role can be a forensic psychology. yeah yeah I'm hoping <laughs> I, I guess I'm, I'm training I'm prepping for that day so hopefully it'll come soon that was actor Stefan James talking about his role in the new Amazon series Homecoming, which is currently streaming, and talking a little bit about his upcoming role in If Beale Street Could Talk, which comes out in theaters at the end of this month. So before we get to our next segment, wanted to chat with you about Zola. If you haven't heard about Zola, you're gonna fall in love with Zola. It's actually a wedding company that will do anything for love. What they are doing right now is reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience. There's currently over 500,000 couples who use Zola. And what they do is take the stress out of wedding planning with free wedding websites, saving the dates and invitations, and creating a wedding registry that's free and easy to use using wedding planning tools. Zola makes it easy to personalize your favorite design with all of your wedding details. You can add photos, stories about how the two of you met, travel and accommodations info, and even recommend things to do for your guests while they're in town for your wedding. Plus, 
Zola now has matching save the dates and invitations. So you have a free guest list manager, you can add guests to Zola's tool, and they'll help you to collect missing addresses and format your addresses and track RSVPs. So easy one source solution for those of you that are undergoing the stress of planning a wedding. Go to Zola.com forward slash nerds. That's Z-O-L-A dot com forward slash nerds. So go to Zola.com forward slash nerds to start your free wedding website or registry on Zola. That's Z-O-L-A dot com forward slash nerds. And now back to our next segment featuring actress Yardley Smith. Yardley Smith is an actress, writer, artist, and best known for her long-running role as Lisa Simpson on the animated TV series, The Simpsons. Yardley Smith is also the co-host of a true crime podcast called Small Town Dicks, which follows big-time crime in small-town USA. The podcast is celebrating its one-year anniversary this past month and has grown rapidly, recently receiving over 1.3 million downloads. Yardley is also the co-founder of Paperclip Limited Production Company, which premiered its new sports-themed film, All Square, starring House of Cards' Michael Kelly at South by Southwest, which was recently released on October the 12th. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie, and I'm your host. Really excited about this episode, you guys. I'm a huge fan a decades-long fan of this guest that we are going to talk to. Uh, Yardley Smith is the voice of Lisa Simpson, who has been around since 1989. And this past September, the series celebrated its 30th anniversary. And Yardley also co-hosts a true crime podcast called Small Town Dicks. And she's the co-founder of Paperclip LTD. And we're going to talk about all of that on today's episode. Yardley, thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. It's really an honor. Absolutely. I Again, I, I'm just geeking out over the fact that I'm talking to Lisa Simpson right now. <laughs> I mean, we sound so much alike. This is me. This is Lisa Simpson. It's really not that far apart. <laughs> Lisa, Lisa was my muse growing up, and she's made such an impact to fans everywhere. And I wanted to know, after doing this for so many decades now, has Lisa Simpson impacted you? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Lisa Simpson is, um, she's certainly who I wish I had been at eight. She's often who I wish I were at 54. Um, you know, she is so incredibly resilient and um, and kind and compassionate and really tries to see both sides of uh, every argument. I, I mean, she's, I feel like she's the best of all of us. And even when she gets petty and jealous, um, I think those flaws make her even more relatable. I, I honestly feel as though even if I didn't give her voice that I, she's one of the best fully formed female characters created in any medium in our time, you know? I agree with that completely. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel that sometimes, because everybody is so attached to this character of Lisa Simpson, do you feel that sometimes people try to box in who she is, whether she's someone that 
shares conservative ideals or liberal ideals or a feminist. I mean, she's at an age where she herself may not entirely know what those things are. Yeah. Um, I think as a culture, we have a tendency to try to box people in, to slap a label on them and go, okay, that's done. I figured that out and move on to the next thing. Um, I, I, I would be wary of doing that with Lisa Simpson. I think that she's truly so multifaceted. And, and as I said, you know, even when she slips up and is not as compassionate and, uh, inclusive and savvy as she is most of the time, I, what I love about her is that she's willing to admit her faults and then try to learn from them. You know, we should all we should all be so uh, so adept, so adaptable. <laughs> do you? Um, I mean, after all this time, you pretty much own the character. Do you provide a lot of insight to each of the episodes that we see each week of how her character is developed? No, it's not. No, it's not really. Um, it's not really a democracy like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the writers, uh, although, of course, I would be welcome in the writer's room, um, everybody more or less stays in their lane. I will say, though, that if Lisa Simpson, if they have her saying something that I don't think she would say, or if a character is really, really mean to her and she doesn't have any, um, she doesn't have a, a, a response to that that I feel is true to the character. I always, always speak up. I really do feel like I have an obligation to stick up for my girl. I, I truly, I love her so much. And oddly, I feel that she exists quite separately from me. It's, it's different than doing on camera in that regard. Lisa Simpson is such a unique collaboration with literally each part contributing 33 and a third percent of her entire being. So you have the starts with the writers, then the actors infuse those words with their take on it. And then the animators take that, take that recording and they draw, they, you know, make the animation to it. So, you know, it's, I, that, I think that's why people actually literally attach to a cartoon character, even though, um, she's, she's four fingered and not a living, breathing person the way you and I are, mm-hmm. but, uh, she is so fully fleshed out that, um, I think it's easy to see why people would attach to her. Absolutely. And I, I know this is probably a question you get all the time, but I have to ask, is there a, a favorite episode of yours that you've done over the years, uh, that touched you the most with Lisa? You know, I I do get that question a lot, and it's it's hard to choose when you have over six hundred and sixty episodes. And so I feel like I have a running list of about ten of them, and it changes. But uh, I recently was reminded of an episode with Sideshow Bob called "The Man Who Grew Too Much," and it's a wonderful episode where Lisa Simpson befriends Sideshow Bob, who, as you know, is always trying to kill her brother Bart. Um, and she, they kind of bring out the unexpected best in each other. And then, of course, he goes back to his, his murdery ways. But um, there's a wonderful episode in season two called uh, Lisa's Substitute, where they actually flew me to New York to record with Dustin Hoffman, who plays Lisa's substitute teacher. And that was just a huge day in my working life 
anyway, even 30 years on, it was, he was such an incredible collaborator and I was so honored to work with him. And James L. Brooks, who's our executive producer, directed that session. He doesn't usually direct us um, when we do the, you know, weekly episodes. So the whole thing from soup to nuts was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is my life. This (laughs) is amazing. That sounds amazing. And you're doing some really amazing work because outside of The Simpsons, you're also the co-founder of Paperclip LTD. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization and its mission? Yeah. So Paperclip Limited uh, is a production and development company that I founded with my business partner uh, of about eight years called, called, we call him Ben Cornwell because, you know, that's his name. Uh, he's a, he's a terrific, uh, partner. We complement, complement each other so well. And really the company was formed because I stopped getting, I really have stopped getting a lot of on camera work before I did Lisa Simpson. And even in the early years of The Simpsons, I used to do a lot of on camera work, a lot of guest stars. I did a bunch of movies. And then it all started to dry up. And I don't know why. I think it was sort of a confluence of many things. I think the business was changing. Um, I also think it's obviously it's an ongoing conversation and hopefully getting better, but it's always harder for women as we get older to get roles. So, but I am really late to the party, Jamie, like people who realize, oh shit, I'm not getting as much on camera work as I like, probably within a couple of years, go out and form a production company and create work for themselves. I, one of the downsides I would say of being so successful right out of the gate and at such a young age, you know, I didn't get into college. I went right from high school to working. I was 17 years old and I think I handled it well, but the downside was is that it didn't teach me to build a foundation. So in retrospect, I liken it to sort of being like a house without a foundation. So when things started to to go differently when I stopped getting auditions. Like rarely did anybody offer me a part, by the way, and that wasn't the thing. I was happy to have an audition and go to the audition and actually get the job. But if you don't, if you aren't presented with the opportunities, um, then I honestly didn't know what to do. And I had a good agent, but he couldn't fix it either. And because I had never had to struggle, I honestly had no idea what to do. And it took me about eight years, which is a really long time to kind of pull up my socks and go, okay, I guess I'm going to have to be this multi-hyphenate that I never thought I would be, that I actually never aspired to be. I was always happy just to be an actress. I didn't need to be a producer. I didn't need to direct. I didn't want to write. I was like, I'm good. This is great. I love doing what I'm doing. Um, so I, it, it took me a long time to form this company, but now... What I love, and this ties back to The Simpsons, is that the best part about that job is that it's afforded me a tremendous amount of choice. And so it's given me an enormous amount of freedom, which is truly, I think, the greatest luxury in life, to be able to choose the things I want to do and say no to the things I don't want to do. So at Paperclip, because of The Simpsons, we have an actual budget. So if somebody brings us a script and we love it, we can actually move on it. We don't have to wait for five other people who have the financing to say yes. And while we seek co-financing in the projects that 
cost a lot of dough. Like we co-financed a film called All Square, which is out in theaters now and also available on iTunes, starring Michael Kelly and Pamela Adlon. We have another thriller coming out next year called Alone, and that was co-financed as well. But we just started pre-production on a film that we're shooting down in Baton Rouge that we financed alone. And we wouldn't be able to do that without The Simpsons. And really, that's the mandate of the company. We want to take uh, projects in their earliest stages in across all mediums and develop them. The Black Girl Nerds podcast will be back in just a moment. Every plate. Enjoy amazing chef design meals for just $4.99 per serving that are delivered right to your door. Think of it this way. One meal is the same price as one cup of coffee and a lot healthier than a combo meal at your favorite fast food restaurant. Recipes come together in about 30 minutes and definitely faster than a trip to the grocery store. Less time deciding what to cook means more time spending and enjoying good food with family and friends. Every plate's easy to follow recipes take the stress out of dinner time and every plate does meal planning, shopping, and prepping all for you, taking the time-consuming guesswork out of cooking. I had the opportunity to try out every plate. My favorite was chicken sausage orzo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing orzo right, but it was good. It comes with lemony zucchini ribbons. And the prep time was less than 10 minutes, and it took a total of 35 minutes to make. That's the way I like to cook. Quick, easy preparation, very short cooking time, and it was absolutely delicious. With savory chicken stock, sauteed onion, herby chicken sausage, fresh lemon juice, and the ingredients blended perfectly. So for listeners of this podcast, go to everyplate.com and enter the promo code NERDS. That's everyplate.com, enter the promo code NERDS. You will get 50% off of your first box. That's right. 50% off is like getting two dinners for one cup of coffee or one combo meal at that fast food restaurant. So get 50% off of your first box at everyplate.com and enter the code NERDS. Back to our segment with Yardley Smith. That's, that was a really long answer. I'm sorry. No, that was a very profound answer. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you shared that because I feel like you've now found your calling. And sometimes it takes a little bit longer than others for you to be able to find that. But you're doing some really great work with Paper Clip LTD. And and I, I was actually at South by Southwest. We covered it uh, this year. And oh, I yeah. understand, yeah, that this premiered there. So I didn't get a chance to catch this film. But now I, I definitely need to check it out because... Uh, Big fan of Michael Kelly. He's um, so great. And he's doing comedy, which it's dark comedy, but he brought it to us because he's always wanted to do comedy. Of course, every actor wants to do the thing that they don't ordinarily get to do. And he's brilliant at it. Of course, he's brilliant at it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I would love to see him doing something outside of what we know him for on House of Cards. So yeah. that's that's fantastic. For for our listeners that are budding filmmakers, screenwriters, what, what is Paperclip looking for in terms of content? You know, the other thing that we decided is that we wouldn't have a particular genre or a niche that we um, adhere to. 
Um, Alone is a thriller. All Square is a dark comedy where we developed really a beautifully developed half-hour kids animated show called Neo Cats. The art is will just blow your mind. We've been pitching that around. We have a um, a docu series about minor league baseball that we did a pilot fall pilot for called Bush League, where we followed the St. Paul Saints, which is an independent minor league team. Um, we have the podcast, obviously, Small Town Dicks. So what I like is that for all the spaghetti we have thrown at the wall, quite a bit has stuck. And that's sort of the dream, you know, to diversify so that it, sort of in terms of when you're investing your money, you don't want to put it all on Apple stock. You should, you know, throw it around to a few other things, too, because what if Apple goes down the tubes? So and we just we have so many for me, I'm sort of I think I have a really skittish attention span. So I like a lot of variety in my life, in my food. Uh, in my music, in my interests, all that stuff. So this really fits that model quite beautifully. You mentioned uh, you do a podcast called Small Town Dicks. Tell us about that. That's such an interesting name for a podcast. <laughs> it is an interesting name. And it, sort of, it doesn't actually really reflect the gravity and the reverence we treat these cases with. Um, but it is, so it's this true crime podcast that I co-host with my best friend, Zibby Allen, and two identical twin detectives named Dan and Dave. And me and Zibby and Dan and Dave are all just friends. And whenever we get together, Zibby and I would say to Dan and Dave, okay, what did you do today? Because their days are so extraordinary. Even the ones that they consider to be mundane are so out of the box for most of us. And we were all sitting around one day and we're like, you know, this should be a podcast. And uh, about six weeks later, we thought we can do this. And we started to record and our premise quickly became, first of all, Dan came up with the name small town dicks, dicks referring to obviously the noir slang for detective, not in terms of the me too movement. It seems rather um, (laughs) unfortunate now uh, a year on, but, um, and we also thought because Dan and Dave are incredibly funny that it would have a lot more levity than it does. But when we got into these cases and really heard how the detectives conduct their investigation from soup to nuts, we realized that it was a lot more serious and that we really wanted to give these um, detectives and these people in law enforcement the respect and reverence that they deserve for the work that they do so well. And so meanwhile, we still had the name, but every story, every case on the podcast is told by the detective who investigated it. And they're not all told by Dan and Dave. We actually, they actually usually get about two to four episodes per season. And so far we're on our third season and we're only uh, just over a little uh, over a year old. Um, and you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, everywhere you like to listen. But what we love is our fan base is incredibly engaged. We have over 800 five-star reviews. We Just nice. before we hit our one-year anniversary, we uh, busted through a million downloads. That was a huge deal for us because Zibi creates this really beautiful, intricate online um, media campaign. And then I retweet it. And until I actually got a publicist this year, that's, that's all we had. So we owe it to our fans who are remarkable. Who One of them started a discussion group, like they are all about it. 
Well, you were really smart by choosing the true crime genre of storytelling in the podcast space because that's really where it's at. Like serial kind of broke the mold. Absolutely. The success of true crime. So everybody is listening to true crime podcasts now. So that was a pretty uh, genius decision to to go. I'd like to say that was fully intended, but really (laughs) (laughs) just a a dumb accident. (laughs) No, own it, own it. You, you okay, it. yes, yes. See, Jamie Ice was like, you know what? We could do a podcast on anything. Let's do true crime. <laughs> well, you know, I was listening to episode four titled Wolf. Yes. And uh, I mean, it's it's some pretty disturbing stuff. This uh, family go on a weekend getaway and they entrust a family friend that sadly has a history of, of child abuse. But they said that, you know, that he was reformed and redeemed and and trusted him to do it. And as it turned out, they found out that he was abusing one of their kids. Um, and I, I was curious to know, you know, with such disturbing stories that you guys profile on each episode, what has been the most disturbing episode that you've ever done? Um, you know, they're all pretty, they're mostly pretty dark. There's an episode in, um, season one called unspeakable, which people with children are like, nope, nope, can't listen to that. Nope. It's a one of really, it's the child abuse was so, uh, so vicious that this, the state that it takes place in actually changed the law about how child protective protective services conducts their child welfare checks. Um, but I think the thing that sticks with me the most is the people who are left behind. And I wonder how those people, the husbands, wives, parents, children, relatives, friends, lovers, how do you process that much loss? And those are the things that keep me up at night. Of course, you feel enormous compassion for the victim, but but sadly, they're gone, you know, unless it is, you know, in, in some ch- of the, like in Wolf, uh, the child, it's not a murder case, but it is a case of child abuse. And you again, you wonder, how does that little girl who suffered that abuse at the hands of this family friend, how right. does she, how do you recover from that? Exactly. Um, and it's a question, actually, that we ask all our detectives when your job is seeing the worst of humanity every single day, and that's what happens. You're going toward that every time you, lo- you leave your house. Where do you put that? Mm. And they all have different answers, but in many ways, it's a similar answer. And basically, there's a lot of compartmentalization that goes on. But they also all say that if you don't deal with it in some regard, either with your coworkers or you, a lot of them love the great outdoors, you know, they do a lot of hiking, they go hunting, they do fishing, you know, something to sort of clear their heads. If you don't find a way to process it somehow, it will come back and get you. Right. Right. It'll rear its ugly head. Absolutely. Well, I, yeah, I definitely encourage listeners. Obviously you guys love podcasts. Definitely check out small town dicks because it was some pretty compelling stuff to listen to Uh, with your podcast, obviously the Simpsons and then paperclip. 
what's next for you? Because you're just busy. <laughs> I am. Just, I just feel busy, Jamie. I feel like what's next for me is, um, is it Saturday yet? Uh, people always ask me like, oh my God, Yardley, what are you going to do for the weekend? I'm like, could I just hopefully do nothing? Right. I'd be, that, I'm so good at that. I prefer <laughs> not doing anything. <laughs> I'm so all about it. And I, I guess, you know, it's sort of a joke, but sort of not because for so much of my career, I really, my life really, I tied my identity to what I do. And then, you know, going back to the time when my on-camera career really started to dry up and I wasn't able to do what I love as much as I love to do it, I actually had a huge identity crisis because if I am what I do and I can't do it as much as I want, then who am I? And the overarching revelation of that period of time is that I had not created any balance in my life whatsoever. I was all about the work. I was all about what's not yet done. And if you aren't living in the present, so many things happen. One thing that happens is you don't remember anything, including the successes. And the other thing is, is that you fail to enjoy so many of the things that you're actually doing right in this moment. So when I say, I hope I don't have anything to do this weekend, it actually is really is privately profound for me because it means that I may have to sit with a moment where many moments, an entire day where I'm not ticking 19 things off my list. That's really hard for me. I am obsessed with productivity. And so that shift in um, feeding my soul and getting a chance to refill the well so that you have the energy and enthusiasm to do the things that you actually love and do them at the level that you expect your you expect of yourself is super important. What amazing, beautiful kernels of truth there. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and taking the time to chat with us today. It's uh, an honor and a privilege to talk to you. You are just uh, delightful. You are where are you located? I'm in Virginia, Virginia you Beach. Are, you are. Oh, because you yeah. know I'm from Washington, D.C. Oh. Yeah. That's like two and a half hours away. Yeah. Know. It's not that far. I mean, when you think of Virginia and California, see, that seems far, but Virginia and D.C., not yeah. as far. I'm going to skip. Yeah. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.